I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome. Welcome to, to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax and enjoy exploring 800 years of music history in Notre Dame. Hello, Alan. Thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day in paradise. It's raining absolutely cats and dogs outside, but um, but we're here to talk about some wonderful music and uh, and safely indoors, aren't we? Uh, we sure are, and it's uh, yeah, it's great to be back talking about music with you, Hugh, and particularly a really interesting and varied program. We've got much wider range of uh, periods and different styles of music than we often get, even though. Nearly all of it's connected with France and uh, and particularly with our theme of Notre Dame. Yes, Notre Dame, when I, I suppose even those words, they evoke so much and so much history, so much music history. And I think a lot of our listeners are probably curious as to how this program might unfold because um, there is so much to choose from. Where does this story sort of take us uh, between? Which parts of history? Yeah. Well, I guess we're starting actually with uh, very modern history in that uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, of course, famously burnt down on the 15th of April 2019, which I think was the, the genesis of this concert uh, concept in the first place, which uh, was originally scheduled for 2020, right? But it was one of those things that had to be changed because of the whole COVID crisis. And so now we're coming back to that story in 2024. Uh, and it gives us an opportunity to go right back to the beginnings, really, of uh, Western art music. So we have uh, origins with Gregorian chant and with, uh, or composed chant, in fact, uh, some of the very earliest polyphony that we have, music in, in parts in Western music history. And we're going all the way through there to the kind of later end of the, the period that the Brandenburg Orchestra usually covers, which is up to the mid 18th century and a fantastic smorgasbord of French music uh, all the way in between. Absolutely. And uh, you're almost right with what you said about the, the genesis of the program, that uh, it, it, certainly the impact of the fire uh, and, and that changed totally what the project um, was all about. But in fact, Paul, uh, Paul Dyer and Alana Valentine had already been speaking about creating a program together. And they had already centered their thoughts on a building like Notre Dame. They hadn't decided Notre Dame would be absolutely be it, but it was going to be a celebration of uh, theatre, so th with involving actors and music and architecture. And uh, lo and behold, during the preparations, during some of those talks, then of course the terrible events um, uh, unfolded at, uh, in Paris at, at Notre Dame Cathedral, and it sort of it brought all of those ideas really to 
uh, to a head, uh, as in would it be appropriate was the first question as well to, to go with, along with some sort of series like this. It, uh, and then the decision was made that, yes, absolutely, even more so, it was important to tell this story in a way and it would work as a an emotional message of, of support mm. in a way to what that many people through the world have, have, have felt is terrible um, loss actually during the, the, the fire and, and, and all of, all of the, the events that unfolded. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't realise that. That's uh, fantastic that they were already working on, on the project and so it actually kind of fell into place as a, as a sort of response to what had, had happened with the, the burning of the cathedral. Um, but uh, looking at the, the music that we're going to hear, it's clearly not just a history of the cathedral because a lot of the music is not church music, as you said. It's about the theatre and so forth as well. And, um, and we have a script written by Alana Valentine and two actors, I think, are going to be involved in the production. So it's going to be quite spectacular. Can you give us an idea of kind of what the concept is? Well, it's hard to sort of uh, pull together a concept like this into just a couple of sentences, but I'll do my best. Um, Look, Alana and Paul work together in developing the concept, but Alana is responsible and actually is an award winner for this particular script. She's a a script writer and uh, and also a, a director, and this script won the 2021 Australian Writers Guild Augie Award, for best script for musical theatre. So obviously the, the the context of the work is placed within musical theatre and that's that's I think it's the right place for it. When you think about what sort of project this is, it's not purely theatrical but it's not necessarily a musical either. Musical theatre sort of sounds, sounds about right. And uh, the two actors who are named she and he in the script... <laughs> <laughs> there, there are there are other names, um, and and they do get revealed during the um, during the show. But I'll let listeners enjoy that when they come live to see the the concert because it certainly is worth seeing. Um, they are embodying two very different characters. So on the first hand, the the female character is an embodiment of um, a young, entrepreneurial, ambitious uh, Australian engineer. And she has been invited to uh, work, and this is pre-fire, invited to work on the renovations uh, and the regular works that, that are actually carried out on Notre Dame. But, of course, arrives in Paris and, uh, and uh, the, the events that unfolded unfold and, uh, and hence her involvement in, in those events is, um, is, is obviously the story that we follow. But the other character, he, it's not so clear as to who he is. It's a bit ambiguous. However, later on, it's revealed that it's actually Victor Hugo. And uh, Alana has borrowed um, and re, sort of resituated uh, some of the, 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 the text that was actually from Victor Hugo's novel about Notre Dame and uh, incorporated it within her script such that it's a very natural fit that he has some dialogue that uh, obviously is, is in response to what she's saying, but in fact it's Victor Hugo talking centuries earlier. So it's, it's, an, incredible, wow. it's an incredible thing. That's a, a fantastic concept. I'm really looking forward to hearing how that works. But I guess our job today is to talk more about the music itself. And uh, in a way, um, I suspect that 
because this is going to be so theatrical and so kind of engrossing as a, a stage experience, that it may be a little bit like some of the projects that the orchestra has done with Circa, the circus um, group. Uh, it's so visually engaging and so it draws you into the story and so forth so much that it's actually a bit hard to concentrate on the music while you're there. Um, and so uh, it may be nice for us to talk through what some of the pieces of music are and where they fit in the kind of history of Paris and of, uh, of Notre Dame in particular. Um, so there's a bit of context. So maybe when uh, listeners come to the concert and, and hear it, then you may just have a few moments of going, ah, that's that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that piece that kind of fits uh, into the story in this way. Well, that's absolutely what I want to do with you today. Um, the only other thing I'll add is that there's another, an, an elephant in the room, as it were, yet another bit of, of um, magnificence to, uh, to enjoy while you'll be seated in the theatre. And that is a six meter high window display, which is actually a um, sheet of, of metal onto which projections are going to be shone and de depicting imagery and, and various other things um, in uh, basically revolving around Notre Dame and the fire and, and, uh, and, and the, the story of the, the script as well. So not only will your eyes and ears be uh, following what the actors are doing, following what the musicians are doing, but you've also got this screen there as well. So it, it is going to be a, an in, incredibly impressive uh, production to, to, to look at and, and enjoy. That sounds fantastic. It is Sony Lumiere, right? Yeah, the that's sound right. Of a light show, literally. Uh, yeah. With, uh, yeah, with the orchestra playing. Fantastic. Now, going to then some of the earliest music, um, obviously, when I look at the repertoire list and I see Hildegard von Bingen's name and I see uh, Perrotin, Le Grand, uh, these are some of the earliest figures in our, in our musical story today. So perhaps we could start there, Alan. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, Hildegard is uh, actually pretty much contemporary with Perrotin, but the sound of the music is very different. Um, Hildegard actually is the only composer on the program, I think, who doesn't have a direct connection with Notre Dame, but the sound of her music uh, is representative of the style of Gregorian chant, which was the basic sound of all church music throughout the period, really from, the, from late antiquity sometime, uh, we don't really know when it, it originated, right through until the mid-20th century, when in Catholic churches, most of the music that you heard was Gregorian chant. Now, Hildegard's music is a bit different because it's not liturgical chant. It's not the normal Gregorian chants that you hear through every church service. Instead, these are compositions that she actually wrote in the chant style. And this, of course, is, stands out as uh, important because she was a female uh, composer and also a very important figure in the church. She was only a few years ago designated as officially a doctor of the church, um, which is uh, pretty uh, much in the same uh, field as being a saint, though the question of whether she's officially a capitalist saint, I think, is still uh, slightly up in the air, but a very important figure in the medieval church. Uh, so she wrote lots of music, in uh, which was all sacred, and in the style of chant, but with her own kind of distinctive slant on it. And what we're going to hear here is uh, a sequence, which is a, uh, a chant composition of which, which other composers were also writing during this period. And it's a song in the praise of the Virgin Mary. Could we maybe listen to a bit of that, Hugh, just to get a sense of what the sound world is of Hildegard's music? Of course. So 
This recording comes from Voices of Ascension, and this particular track, O Virga Ak Diadema, is the opening track from their album, Hildegard of Bingen, Choral Music, Voices of Ascension. And so this album was released in 1997, and, uh, and I'm just going to put that on and then we can continue talking about this, uh, this particular sound world. So, Alan, tell us about this music and and perhaps even some of the meaning behind this particular sequence, if you can. Well, uh, it's a sequence in praise of the Virgin Mary, which is fairly typical of this period when the cult of Mary was a, a big deal in uh, throughout the Middle Ages, really. Uh, and perhaps there's some significance in the fact that she's a female mystic and uh, and composer writing in praise of the Virgin Mary, so kind of um, a woman addressing her praise to a woman. Um, we can't really know too much about that, though Hildegard did write a great deal uh, about her visions and uh, her theology and so forth, as well as composing music. And she was, during her time, famous um, for a whole lot of things, including writing about uh, medicines and um, the herb, uh, the medical use of herbs and all sorts of things. But in this music, um, listeners who are, have some kind of sense of the sound world of Gregorian chant will recognize that it's definitely in that sound world of chant. On the other hand, Hildegard had her own distinctive style to some extent, and it's not entirely clear where that came from. Um, being a nun, she was cloistered and so she heard only the chant that was sung either by the monks in the, the neighbouring monastery or by her own uh, nuns in the convent. So where did she pick up her style? Well, she probably was just elaborating on the kind of sound that she heard in Gregorian chant anyway. But one of the things that's distinctive is that her music is quite expressive. It has a wider range than most uh, ordinary liturgical chants have. And we heard that maybe just uh, um, towards the end of that uh, ex example that we were listening to, where the voice suddenly soars up an octave uh, from low to really high in the voice. And uh, that's just very kind of powerful 
uh, expressive kind of device um, in within the, the kind of limitations of the sound world of Gregorian chant. So obviously what we're talking about here is unaccompanied uh, monophony, that is just one, vo one part where uh, even however many people you have singing, they're all singing the same melody with no accompaniment. That's the, the standard sound of Gregorian chant. Um, we don't know much about how this music was actually performed at the time. There's very little writing about it that tells us in any detail. But uh, listeners will have noticed in hearing that that there's no obvious, no obvious rhythm to it. And as far as we know, they didn't sing this kind of music most of the time with a definite rhythm. There's no da 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 or ba 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 or anything. It just goes with the rhythm of the words pretty much. Um, so the focus is in fact on the words and the music really is just uh, a kind of heightening of the way that you might speak the words in a large space. And we think this is probably where some of the origins of chant come from, going right back to, to the ancient world and to Jewish traditional chant as well, out of which of course the Christian tradition developed. Um, where if you are saying the sacred words in a big space like a cathedral, you have to make the sound carry and so you would tend to exaggerate the shape of the pitch of the words and that perhaps one of the, one of the ways it developed was that that kind of solidified into a set of patterns which were typically done and gives us this kind of melodic outline but i guess the key to it is the focus is really on the words and then the music uh, develops out of that and it's incredible you know this this sound how it seems to transport you to a very different place almost immediately um, but even though perhaps you might not be familiar with the particular endings and what they mean that uh, that your ear is drawn to that attention and, and sort of you, you you can get a sense for the end of each of the verses within the sequence because of the musical endings that have been that, that have been placed at the sequence of notes and that this tradition obviously developed over a long period of time it's not something that obviously just you know was all of a sudden someone can and there was a brand new style of writing. It was really a process of, of a, a gestation that was very long. That's right, yeah. It's certainly not a case of um, the, our kind of 19th century, I guess, fantasy of how composers work, of you know, sitting down in an eye, uh, well, in a, 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 uh, probably a freezing garret and you know, thinking, oh, I feel inspired to write a symphony today, you know, yeah. what I write. <laughs> um, it's, uh, no, it's much more within a, a, a tradition of daily use, of day in and day out for one's entire life as a, a monk or nun of, of hearing and singing, chant yourself every single day and um, so uh, composers at the time like Hildegard and, and some of her contemporaries who are making up new chants they're doing it absolutely within that uh, very long established tradition and so they're just kind of pushing the boundaries a bit at the edges really of, uh, of this established style. We might think of it as being a bit like the way that um, Japanese potters are trained apparently that you have to start out with your apprenticeship is you just make hundreds of perhaps thousands of identical small bowls and you have to get that absolutely perfect get the shape and the decoration and everything exactly right within the tradition in which you're being trained and only once you're uh, an advanced master do you get to add a few little touches of your own to the decoration um, which reinforces the strength of this powerful artistic tradition um, but also there is, uh, once somebody is uh, established as a master of it, there's the room at the edges to just expand it a little bit with something original and new.
And how does this compare then with Perrotin, that is, as you said, contemporary with Hildegard, and um, but but situated very strongly in, in Notre Dame Cathedral? Yeah, and this is where it gets really interesting in relation to Notre Dame, because, uh, yeah, they are pretty much exactly contemporary, just around the end of the 12th century. Um, Perrotin was uh, at its height probably just about the year 1200. Uh, and this is the period in which the Notre Dame Cathedral is actually under construction, uh, which of course takes uh, many decades for a building as big as that in the Middle Ages. Uh, so what we're hearing here is uh, this very grand church being built, and we're hearing very grand music being developed that goes with it. And this is really important in the history of Western art music. There are actually things that are developed in this period by Perrotin and his uh, and his colleagues, which are foundational to everything that comes afterwards. We wouldn't have Mozart and Beethoven and uh, Wagner and um, up to you know all our contemporary composers in the same way if we didn't have this particular step in music. Now, it's kind of an exaggeration maybe to say, you know, none of that would have happened if they hadn't uh, done this at, at Notre Dame. Somebody else would have probably come up with something similar. But what we get here is for the first time written down some of the uh, elaborations that go on to, to create the possibilities for later music. So um, this piece that we're going to hear is utterly different from what we just heard in Hildegard, even though they're directly contemporary, and even though both of them are based directly on Gregorian chant. And it's not surprising that because this music is 800 years old, it belongs to a sound world which is the least familiar to us, to our modern ears, compared to pretty much everything else on the program. It's extremely brilliant and impressive music, though, which takes us right back to the beginnings of Notre Dame. Uh, now, this is a period when the vast majority of church music, remember, was Gregorian chant. But in the great city or court churches, the chant could be elaborated by skilled singers who would add accompanying harmonies to go with the chant melodies, which were usually improvised, but gradually some of them started to be written down of the accompanying harmonies. So the key here is that you can't change the chant. It's sacred. It's been passed down. Um, it was believed to have been given directly to Pope Gregory the second, I think it was, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore you can't change a note. But you can elaborate it. You can make it more glorious, more spectacular by adding other harmonies uh, around it. And so that's uh, the tradition out of which Perrotin and his colleagues are working. But what we get here is a kind of enormous leap forward in a sense that previously you might have just added one accompanying part singing a kind of harmony along with the chant melody and singing the chant in the normal way as we just heard with Hildegard. But uh, now they are starting to add so much elaboration around the chant melody that you can't actually fit it in if you're singing the chant in the normal way. And this is a fantastic illustration of it, and this is why this is a, a very, very famous um, example of this early polyphony. Uh, what's going on here is that they're performing a, uh, a chant, which is a, a standard one in the liturgy for the Christmas period. It was uh, a chant that's heard on Christmas Day and also on the feast of uh, the circumcision of the Lord, which is the 1st of January. So again, part of the, the Christmas period, the 12 days of Christmas that go from Christmas Day through till uh, the 6th of January. And so it's a standard Gregorian chant, which goes, 
wieder und That's the first line of it. Um, and uh, what, what Permatin does, though, is to slow it down. And this was part of the technique of how you can elaborate more and fit in more elaboration around a very simple chant melody. Um, so usually what had been done within the past century, say, in, um, in improvisation, was you would just slow it down a bit so that you could fit instead of just one note against each note of the chant, you could fit maybe two or three notes against each note of the chant. But here, he's got hundreds of notes against each note of the chant and in three, three voices, which are interweaving with each other in close harmony. So it creates a completely different effect. And so much so that you actually can't hear the chant melody at all. It's slowed down so much that it completely disappears as a melody and it turns into a kind of drone. So remember, I just sang Tom. So the first note is V, and then we get D on the same pitch, right? And that just V takes about a whole minute, right? Pages of music just to sing that first note in the chant, while all of this fantastic elaboration goes on around it. So it's, and it's what creates this astonishing sound world that they invent for, for this kind of music and uh, for the glorification of God. I actually recall, Alan, um, and not wanting to put you on the a spot a, uh, a little bit because you've had so many students, but I actually recall being in your class in early music history and, uh, and hearing this for the first, the first time. Um, I'd been exposed to chant and various other things before, but um, when you're sat, there's something about being sat in a space and li really listening and looking at the score and, and listening to something um, with, a, with a lot of intent. And attention, and it is such a profound uh, leap. Uh, it, you know, it's not just slowing it down; it's basically stopping the chant in its tracks, and, and it, it it almost, as you say, it becomes an accompaniment. It's used as a drone, and and what a drone! What an incredible sound! So, uh, without uh, wanting to make listeners our listeners wait any longer. I'm going to put on uh, a fabulous recording that's well known um, from David Munro in the early music consort of London of Viderunt Omnes, so Perrotin, Perrotin le Grand. And roughly what, what year would this have been? You said the turn of the 13th century. Yeah, we don't know the exact date, but it's around the year 1200. So that's two notes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it is remarkable stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that, that um, I find really fun in the recordings of this is that, because um, when we're singing Latin, um, in church Latin, that there are different pronunciations of it. And so in what we tend to use today is uh, Italian pronunciation, video runt omnes. But some of the recordings I've heard, and I'm not sure which version, you know, which the, what the, um, the choir is going to do in our concert. But if you sing it with French pronunciation, it's vide runt omnes. And so that you get this sudden change of, of tone from the from singing everything on e, v, e, 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 and then suddenly you go, yeah, and yeah. the whole kind of uh, timbre of the thing shifts suddenly and so it's some things like that just tremendously powerful effect that just comes just from changing syllable in the words and to me you know the effect of this is it's kind of mesmerizing isn't it it's almost has some of the the kind of sense of the the minimalism of somebody like philip glass where there's a lot going on but within a very kind of narrow space somehow uh with these three voices interweaving uh and with this constant background of the, the kind of drone-like uh, part of those singing the actual chant melody. Of course, this is a lot of fun to sing if you're singing one of the top parts and a lot less fun if you're singing the chant melody, which oh. just goes on and on. Look, having sung usually the bottom part, uh, uh, when as a younger singer, I was never a treble. I was always an alto and then uh, as, a, as a boy and then uh, as my voice broke, it basically went straight down to the bass section. You know, there was no there was no in between, no tenor any, anywhere, anytime. Uh, it's not actually that, uh, that bad um, because you can sit in and amongst, or rather most of the time you'll be standing and singing, in and amongst the sound of those that are interweaving and it's sort of, uh, you get the full uh, uh, hypnotic experience because you don't mm. have to focus on changing notes, but you do have to focus absolutely on your breathing and making keeping yeah. that drone as seamless as possible. Because of course, no human can sing notes for that long, um, so <laughs> so it's all a, a skill of 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 breathing at uh, basically different times, staggering your breathing, uh, but then also uh, doing it in such a seamless a seamless way, so as to not to reduce the sound um, as you're as you're doing that. Which I think as you as you sort of sing more and more, um, it becomes maybe a bit easier to to do. But certainly even um, professional singers put into a situation where they haven't sung this sort of music before, I think they would find it quite challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is not easy music by any means. And we have, tend to have the idea that there's a kind of um, you know, teleological nar narrative. We go from uh, old music, which is kind of simple and uh, straightforward and undeveloped through to modern music, which is... Uh, evolutionary, you know, it's got better as well as being different. But actually, when we go back to, and it's one of the things I find most fascinating, is when we go back to any period historically of, of music and in any culture, we find there are brilliant musicians doing really challenging, uh, interesting, difficult things uh, in any kind of music culture in any at any time. And the nature of what those difficult things are can be radically different, but there are always challenges uh, which skilled musicians rise to meet in different ways. And I just want to underline one last time, just how brilliant an idea that was to actually take the chant, not in any disservice to the chant really, but to to use it in a totally new way as, a, as a, essentially a drone 
to then express the probably the emotion more of the emotional side of what this this chant means. So it's 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 a huge step in terms of the the use of chant where the the, the words are important, but even though we can't make out the words because the chant has been slowed down so so much, um, the musical affect of, of what those words mean comes across, and it's joyous. It's it's you know it's all of those things, and sometimes uh, you know it, we have these surprises which is so striking, like with the change of syllable, and so marking those points. Obviously, it's it's done very intentionally as to you know what parts of this chant are are still um, kept in a sacred form with with a more regular form of chanting and then other parts where we have this more elaborate singing. Yeah, that's right. Um, we should say that uh, listeners shouldn't come into this expecting to hear the individual, the meanings of individual words or indeed necessarily the meaning of the whole text expressed in any very direct way in the music. It's not... Uh, that becomes a, a big thing much more in the 16th century, as we'll see in a minute when we get up to some of the, the Parisian songs and so forth. Um, in this period, it's more about just elaborating and glorifying the chant um, by, by making it so much more spectacular. Uh, and uh, the yeah, so it's, it's expressive in that sense of just lifting the whole thing, of heightening the experience. And I should, just before we leave Perrotin, you can hear I, I still get uh, fired up about this <laughs> wonderful music. Uh, but I said earlier on that this is uh, so, some of the, the music that makes possible what comes after. And so part of that is because they're developing this way of composing harmony uh, in a denser, much richer kind of sound than was used in European music previously. But the other thing is that in order to write this kind of complex music down, they actually had to invent a new kind of notation. And uh, so previously, chant had been written down simply with neumes, which are little squiggles basically on the page, uh, often without even any lines uh, like modern music has. Um, so they gave a kind of outline of the shape of the, the pitch, to, but it was more to kind of remind you how the chant went if you already knew. You couldn't read a new composition off that kind of notation. So here they had to have a notation that was very precise about pitch, what the actual melody line is, but also it had to be able to notate rhythm because when you have complicated music like this, all the parts obviously have to keep together. And you can't do that unless you have a way of writing down what the rhythm is. So they, this is one of the big innovations of this period, that they invent a notation for writing down rhythm. Um, the other thing that you'll notice is that the rhythm in this piece is always triple. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. And all of the sacred polyphony of this period is in triple rhythms. They don't invent a system for notating duple rhythms, da, 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 like a march rhythm as opposed to a sort of skipping dance rhythm, uh, for another hundred years after this. And that actually makes sense because the number three is sacred in, in uh, Christian um, tradition, and particularly in the Middle Ages. It's associated with the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and therefore music that is sacred naturally falls into threes. And so that's what we get in this music as well. So for all those reasons, this is... Um, it's fascinating and important historically, but it's also just brilliant, brilliant music to listen to. All right, I've said enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some more brilliant music to talk about, and we're going to skip a few centuries ahead. Uh, perhaps, Alan, you could tell us about the next portion of music history that we're going to, we're going to explore in the program. 
Yeah, so next we're skipping forward and uh, listeners will notice that the music doesn't come in this order in the program, of course, because it's organised around the, the narrative of the script. But uh, in order of when the music was written, we're going for uh, now up into the 16th century with the music of Clément Janequin. Uh, and this is definitely not church music. <laughs> this <laughs> is a, uh, this is an entertaining song um, from a genre of uh, a French song, so which, which were just called chanson, just means song, um, from the 16th century, which was sophisticated chamber music, essentially for entertainment. And it's the French equivalent of the early madrigals in Italian music. So uh, there's lots of wordplay, there's double entendre, lots of uh, kind of double meanings in the words. And uh, the music, of course, uh, highlights some particularly salient bits of that. Just to give you a flavor of it, um, the, uh, the opening words are, um, it's merry sport to play it tumbling. The other day when I was seeking diversion, I met a beautiful girl with a noble body, smiling sweetly, I wanted to kiss her, etc, etc. Um, and uh, in the second verse, uh, then I spoke lovingly to her, smiling sweetly, I wanted to kiss her, she laughed gently and danced even without music. Mm. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's a lot of kind of hints of, of double meanings and so forth in there, but it's, it's kind of light, entertaining. Um, uh, sweet music. And one of the interesting things is that this kind of song, unlike Italian madrigals, is strophic. That is, it's uh, a, um, a series of verses all set to the same music. So that means that you can do it in different ways. Um, this kind of music was typically done either by an ensemble of voices or by a solo voice accompanied by a lute, which is essentially playing the parts of the other voices. Um, but I think we're going to hear it with a bit of a mixture of uh, different uh, kind of uh, instruments and voices together, which uh, is nice because with the, the series of different verses of the words, you can actually get to hear different uh, ways of layering them together. That's right. And, you know, where would the fun be if you've got 14 singers just, you know, leaving out 10 of them and only having, you know, soprano, one soprano, one alto, one tenor, and one bass in a song like this? This sort of chanson, um, I think also... Um, uh, always brings a smile to Tommy Anderson's face because he uh, he loves this style of music and um, and I th I think he's going to thoroughly enjoy playing a part uh, in in this too. And there is a, a whole sort of uh, a whole uh, repertoire of, of French lute music from exactly this time, uh, which which makes perfect sense of this as to why it would be accompanied by the lute. Oh, absolutely. So, are we talking about something that was more specific to Paris, or what? Uh, what sort of setting would this uh, chanson, this sort of chanson, been used in? Yeah, that's right. It is very much uh, urban court music. Um, so, Jean came from a city outside Paris, but his career was in Paris, where he was uh, he was actually a priest and worked as a singing teacher and a singer in the, the royal chapel from about fifteen thirty onwards. Um, so this is very much music of Paris and music of the Royal Court. So this, this is sophisticated music sung by expert musicians for the entertainment of the King and his courtiers. Um, that's the kind of scenario that we imagine for this kind of music. Uh, there were lots of other songs, some of which were even more bawdy. Um, some of them are very entertaining uh, evocations of things like birdsong, or uh, there's another famous piece by Jeannequin. Uh, yeah, the one, Song of the Birds, is a fantastic piece to sing. And also one called The Battle, 
in which you actually imitate the sounds of guns going off and all kinds of things very cleverly written into the music. So it's very inventive composer. But here we're going to, to hear something that's uh, more of a kind of straightforward, magical-like um, yeah. four-part piece. Now, uh, there are many recordings of this song, um, including instrumental recordings um, with recorders and all sorts of things. Um, but I have one that I found uh, probably more hilarious than, um, than, than most, especially because the title of the album from, from which the King Singers recorded and this, this um, uh, particular track comes is called Baiser Moi. Which, um, which, I mean, for those French speakers, it's pretty direct as to either. There are two possibilities for that meaning. And, yep, uh, we'll move on so from the, there. The more obvious one is kiss me. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it can uh, imply a little more than that. Well, that's, that's, that's right. And, um, and also it, you have to recall that uh, the sort of use of language um, sometimes at those times, the, the meaning of certain words did vary to what the, the modern uh, meaning of some of these, these words are. Sure. But nevertheless, that one probably hasn't changed. Um, and aujourd'hui jeu, um, so the happy sport or the merry game or however we'd like to talk about it, um, is, is obviously recorded here by the King Singers, on, uh, released on their album Bézimois in 2010 at the breakneck speed of roughly 98 beats per minute. It, it is, it, yeah, but, well, that's for each bar, right? That's four crotchet beats in wow. around 90. So, so hold on to your horses and, and here are the, the king singers. <laughs> I mean, you turn around and you've missed it already. This is incredible, <laughs> incredibly fast. Yeah, uh, it certainly makes it lively. And of course, one of the things about the um, the musical settings of this kind of poetry is, you know, I can read out the words like that and you get, oh, okay, there's, um, you know, funny things going on in the words, but it's the musical setting that brings it to life and the composer can uh, manipulate the way we hear those words by highlighting particular ones, either with melodic shapes or by often by repetition, so that, uh, and by interplay between the voices, so we hear those uh, words passing back and forth between the high and low voices, which might in our imagination represent the female and male characters in the, the little narrative and so forth. So all of that kind of uh, makes it come to life in ways that I guess bring a smile to your face. Oh, absolutely. And even um, for, for the, the French speakers out there, the line laissez, laissez, et laissez, 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 truit avant. So it's, it's almost like a linguistic equivalent of the game that is, is being depicted with laissez, laissez is actually very easy to say, laissez, 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 laissez. So as in running, running, or, you know, this sort of motion that's implied by those words. But then you get to truit, and it's all of a sudden you're tripping over, you know, laissez, laissez, truit avant. It's, it's, it's incredible uh, play and words play in terms of the music and, and, and joyfulness that, um, that I think is, is really what, what's worth reminding um, our listeners to, to sort of look at there. But yeah. um, Clément Jeannequin wasn't the only uh, writer of French chansons. Who else are we going to hear in the, in the program? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, Selmisti uh, is pretty much directly contemporary with uh, with Shanikan. Uh, he was maybe five years younger, uh, and also a court musician. So they probably worked together. Uh, and uh, the song we're going to hear from him, uh, "Tant que vivrai," is another Parisian chanson. Um, pretty much contemporary with what we just heard, but it's uh, not uh, so much of a kind of um, crazy, funny song as that. It's a beautiful love song. And unlike a lot of the love songs, which are, are kind of sad and um, lost love and that kind of thing, this is just a really beautiful, optimistic song about um, about falling in love. And it's it's about having looked at the, the words as well. It's really about young love, isn't it, Alan? You know, when I when I was looking through the the translation, that actually it's a, it's a wonderful poetic translation by Caroline Perry Lagerman. Um, you know, young hearts in flourish combine, and you know, gladness and love. The love as being the source of the divine, uh, but then uh, that that somehow uh, you know others who who don't have that sort of love or are jealous of that sort of love might whisper rumors of some sort of impropriety going on because of the the nature of this young love, as it were. Hmm. Yeah, there's a hint to me of um, the the old, much older tradition of troubadour poetry in this. Um, it's a kind of almost uh, uh, worshiping the the beloved. Um, it starts as long as I, in, at least in one translation, um, as long as I am able-bodied, I will serve the mighty God of love through deeds, words, songs, and harmonies. Many times he's made me languish, but after sorrow he has let me rejoice because I have the love of a beautiful woman with a lovely body. Her alliance is my betrothal, her heart is mine, etc. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, passionate, um, but beautiful love poetry. And yes, as you said in the second verse, um, however far words are carried by the wind, in spite of envy, all my life I will love her and sing to her. She's the first, she's the last that I have served and will ever serve. Yeah, it's an incredible song. So this recording comes to us from Dominique Vissin, who actually directed the ensemble Clément Jeannequin. So quite literally, you know, Clément Jeannequin, who we were talking about just before, um, yeah. so, you know, uh, specialising in this sort of music. Um, on their album Fricassé Parisienne, which was released in 1985. Um, so this is Claudin de Sermisi and Tant que vivrai. Oh. Uh, 
Um, Hugh, that's a, a little bit of a classic recording, I think, of that song. Um, interesting, going back to 1985, uh, but um, uh, Dominique Wies, is, as you say, is such a, uh, an important figure in reviving a lot of this music. And uh, in fact, that's the same recording that I still use in teaching this, this famous song to, to my music history students at the Sydney Conservatorium. Um, and uh, it just creates a beautiful effect. One thing that you may notice in listening to that recording, and I'm not sure whether we're going to do this in the, the concert performance, but because the verse, each verse is structured in an AAB form, it was this very important form in the period um, called uh, bar form, B-A-R, uh, in which you simply repeat the first section and then you sing a contrasting second section. But because the first section is repeated, it means that you can kind of elaborate, embellish, uh, put in a few ornaments and so forth in the, the repeat of it particularly and especially because there's a succession of verses once uh, listeners are kind of familiar with the melody that gives you a little bit more scope to do that you can't do a lot because it's in four-part harmony and you you'll mess up the harmony if you you know get too wild with it but uh, this is one of the skills of um, composing and performing this music that it did provide some scope to to elaborate and another song where um, we're going to hear several verses and hence some different renditions and elaborations on it will be the Charles Tessier, Quand le flambeau du monde quitte l'autre séjour. Um, what can you tell us and remind us about Tessier? We've heard this song actually before. Uh, yeah, gee, I wish I could pronounce the title of it the way you do, Hugh, but I'll, I'll keep practicing. <laughs> so this is music from now about 1600, so it's a generation or two after Jeannequin and Selmissi, but still very much within the same kind of uh, tradition of sophisticated court music um, for uh, for the royal court in Paris. Um, but uh, what we have here is a little bit of a different sound in that again it's music that could be sung in parts or as an, a, a solo song accompanied by the lute and that's also typical of this period around the very end of the 16th century it's kind of in our kind of conventional historiography it's the very end of the renaissance before uh, everything is taken over by the new baroque style that was coming out of italy um, the song that we're going to hear is in a style which is quite similar to some listeners may be familiar with some of the songs of John Dowland, the English composer. Uh, and it has a bit of the same kind of feel in that um, a lot of these songs, were, there was a kind of fashion for melancholia, for sad songs expressing intense uh, grief and despair and so forth. Uh, some listeners may know Dowland's famous song, um, Flow My Tears, for example. Uh, um, flow my tears fall from your springs exiled forever let me mourn and, and so on it's very intense stuff and so we get a bit of a sense of that kind of um, that kind of atmosphere of uh, sadness and melancholia in this music of Tessier and this recording that I'm going to put on for listeners actually hails from Vincent Dumestre's group Le Poème Harmonique led by, in, in this instance, Claire Le Filiatre, who came and, uh, and was a soloist with, um, with Brandenburg for the program French Baroque, which was the first collaboration with, um, with Circa. Um, now, it's, it's an incredible piece of music, and this recording in particular I've, I've come, become quite fond of, having listened to it many times now. Um, I, I still keep finding um, all, sorts of, all sorts of interesting things um, within it. 
um, released on, uh, on the album Tessier Carnet de Voyage in 2006 by Le Poème Harmonique. One of the things that's fascinating to me in listening to this kind of music is that uh, it's very kind of sophisticated the way that it's structured, although it sounds sort of simple on the surface. One of the things, fascinating things I think that's going on is that as you listen to it, it's kind of hard to feel where the beat is. It seems to shift back and forth between groups of twos and threes. Um, when we see it written down in modern music notation, it's conventionally written out in 4-4, four, four. so it's uh, in a regular uh, groups of, of twos and fours but if you map that onto the way the words work you get it, it comes out looking very odd uh, so it would be um, quand le flambeau du monde quitte l'autre ce jour and if you're holding to that kind of regular duple beat it doesn't really fit and of course when you perform it uh, it's actually this, this shifting uh, set of uh, different twos and threes. And one of the things that uh, is worth remembering about that is that in our modern notation, we put bar lines in regularly every uh, four crotchet beats to say, which tells us where's the next stress coming. And that's great in music that has a regular stress, but in music like this that doesn't, it's actually misleading. And uh, the older style of notation, even in print that was used when this music was new, didn't have regular bar lines in the same way. And so, of course, you just read it off according to the stress of the words. And what that means is that actually the word stress can shift a bit in different verses or different lines of, of music. And so you've got not just one interesting pattern of twos and threes, but sometimes changing patterns when you sing the same music, but the stress may fall in a different place. And so it plays into this kind of sophisticated interplay between the words and the music. 
And interesting that you sort of note about the position of stresses and bar lines because, of course, combining uh, more contemporary players uh, with their contemporary knowledge, and even if they have been quite, become quite practiced uh, in historically informed performance practice, combining those skill sets with the singers who might may more naturally uh, add these stresses or, or not add certain stresses because they're following the text. Um, the, the instrumentalists have to be very careful to not fall into that trap of adding a stress where it absolutely should not be. Um, and it, and it's, it's incredible, like the skill, uh, obviously, of, of the, the playing here, along the instrumental playing here alongside as an accompaniment to the, the singing is, is what I, I think one of those things that I keep coming back to as well. And that the Brandenburg uh, Orchestra, I mean, they do so, so magnificently too. Yeah, and uh, it's one of the real skills that we don't think of for instrumental players is they've just got to really listen to the words and to the, the vocal part and make sense of instrumental lines that don't have words to them uh, in relation to the parts that do. And that's uh, yeah, one of the really kind of interesting and, and challenging things about accompanying vocal music, I think, even up to the present day. Now, the, the next composer we're going to talk about is certainly uh, no stranger to words and, um, and singing as well as instrumental music, um, Jean-Baptiste Lully. I mean, he, in the context of French music history, uh, he is potentially the number one figure um, of, Im of importance, of incredible stature um, and importance, especially for Baroque music. Um, what, what would you like to tell us about Lully and what of his music are we specifically going to hear in this program? Yeah, uh, so Lully, uh, famous for, in a sense, having invented the French Baroque style. Um, he was the leading composer of the mid to late 17th century, the court of Louis XIV. Uh, he was the king's um, favorite composer, a friend of the king, and the the and uh, it was said that in the same way that uh, the king was the dictator over the whole of France, uh, Lully was the dictator over the over French music. <laughs> he manoeuvred himself into a position of power where he was in control of pretty much everything in music that went on at the court, and in particular, of composing operas. And he certainly did invent the style of, of French opera, um, which uh, was. Uh, derived from Italian opera, which was well established by then, but it needed to be different because the French language was so different, the French style of singing was different. Um, and so he's very important as uh, in establishing this, this new style. Um, what we're going to hear in uh, actually a se sequence now of um, pieces from French opera are actually instrumental pieces, though. We're not going to hear any uh, sung sections of the operas, but it makes um, it's helpful to know where they kind of fit in. So the first thing we're going to hear is the Pascaille, uh, which is the uh, dance from the end of the fifth, uh, from the fifth act uh, towards the end of Lily's perhaps most famous opera, Armide. Um, this is a story derived from um, a, an epic poem about the Middle Ages and the, the Crusades and so forth. Uh, but what we need to know about this is that uh, French opera was full of dance. Uh, unlike Italian opera, which was all about the singing, French opera had more of a kind of, um, we might say, balance between the importance of the, the poetry and of the vocal music and lots of dance, because dance was very important in French uh, court culture. Uh, and uh, the king himself, Louis XIV, was a very fine dancer, as was Lully uh, as the composer. Uh, and so we get lots of ballet in French operas as well. Uh, so this Pascal, is 
uh, it's a form that was used typically at the end of an opera as the kind of grand finale in a way to to conclude the opera uh, and uh, the typical features of it musically are that it has a repeating descending bass line which gives us a kind of heavy relentless sort of feel which is very grand uh, that's derived from uh, an Italian tradition uh, a little bit older where uh, a song could be improvised over the top of this repeating descending bass line uh, it typically just goes pom 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 or it can be in a kind of major key sound but basically just that descending forth which was used uh, a lot across lots of different kinds of music but here it's kind of co-opted into the service of, of French dance music so it doesn't just continue in the same key the whole way through as some earlier versions of the Pascal um, uh, could do uh, but it has that distinctive sound of, of the descending bass which is uh, so uh, typical of the French style at this time. So for a recording, um, what I'm going to put on for listeners is actually a live recording that was um, uh, released in 2015 by Les Talons Lyriques um, of the, the whole opera. But So this is just a, a portion of the opera, obviously, it's the, the, in the fifth act. So <laughs> the amount of music you're going to get into if you find this particular, um, this particular recording is probably four CDs worth. Um, so the, uh, the, the Pasakai comes from the, f the fifth act, the f end of the first scene, and uh, here led by Christophe Rousset and performed by Les Talents Lyriques. As the music continues, Alan, uh, this feels almost, uh, now that I've been working with Brandenburg as the um, music librarian since 2019, it's, it's almost like coming back home in a way. This is like what, what I expect the Brandenburg to be playing. You know, it's this sort of, that, that, that feeling of baroqueness and um, the sound of the harpsichord as well, especially much more prevalent here. Yeah, that's right. We're well and truly in the, the zone of the baroque by now. And uh, so we've leapt forward uh, several decades from um, from the time of Tessier, around 1600. We're now up in the, the late 1600s. Uh, so it is a yeah very different kind of sound world. And uh, and also, of course, on a much grander scale, because that was uh, chamber music and this is um, grand theatrical music. But um, I guess uh, listeners will probably be, be able to have 
to hear in that recording that kind of very grand descending uh, pumping bass line. But one of the interesting things he does is that it starts out in slow beats, just a palm, 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 palm. But by the time we get further into it, he ratchets up the kind of the intensity and the energy of it by bringing in shorter note values. So that those those notes, the pattern is still there, but it's broken up into much quicker notes, which gives the whole thing a feeling of kind of winding up the, the excitement towards the end of the dance, which is, uh, yeah, it's a very theatrical kind of concept. And in speaking of theatrical music and uh, Luli, it's almost hard to not mention the other elephant in the room being Ramul, who features also quite heavily in this program. But uh, obviously in terms of music history comes a little later after Luli and his, um, his death. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the music we're going to hear from Ramul is all from the 1740s. So this is the um, best part of... Uh, six decades after the death of Lully. But one of the interesting things about that is that Lully was so dominant in French music that he is one of the first composers, in fact, whose music stayed on in the repertoire for an extended period after his death. This, up until this time, it had been pretty much a matter of all the music that you heard was, was new, just about, apart from Gregorian chant, of course, which continued uh, inevitably through the whole thing, but of composed music. Uh, nearly all the music that everyone heard was new, but not in the case of Lully, where they continued performing, particularly Armide, that famous opera that we just heard, uh, for decades after his death. So when Rameau comes on the scene, um, he is coming very much out of that French tradition, but there's a whole lot that's happened in between. And so his music was uh, highly praised, but also it set off a powerful debate between those who were traditionalists and wanted to hang on to the uh, well-accepted sound world of Lully and those who were ready to embrace some newer kinds of sounds. So to our modern ears, you may not immediately hear how much difference there is between Lully and Rameau, but to the people at the time, the new kinds of sounds that Rameau was writing were quite shocking in some respects. And part of what we hear is for example in the uh, the overture we're going to hear from Les Fêtes de Poligny uh, it um, this is music that couldn't have been written by Lully it uh, in fact it probably couldn't have been written without the influence of Vivaldi there's a, a bit of Italian coming into this music whereas the French had considered their music to be totally separate from Italian music and of its own distinctive sophisticated style uh, but Vivaldi's instrumental music is now so dominant in the 1720s and 30s that by the time we get up to the 40s and while I was writing this I think uh, you can you can hear some Vivaldi in this um, he starts with a uh, a really surprising sequence of notes, which it's just rising by by intervals of a fourth. So the effect of that is it almost sounds like the instruments are just tuning up at the beginning, you know, that as if it's not really a melody at all. Uh, and then it erupts into thrilling fanfares with trumpets and oboes and bassoons and so forth again, which sounds quite Italian in some ways. And so he's giving us a very exciting kind of almost a shocking sound world for the for the French audience at the time. And um, who better than to keep going with Les Talents Lyriques, um, led by Christophe Rousset, to actually showcase this, this incredible energy that you're, you're describing there. Um, so this recording, Les Fêtes de Polymny, the, the overture from Les Fêtes de Polymny, hails from a, an album that they released in 1997, so going a, a little bit back in time. 
titled uh, Rameau Overtures, where they actually put together a whole uh, suite of, of overtures, these sorts of opening mm. works to, um, to the, these uh, Comédie Ballet and, and Opéra uh, Ballet um, in, in one album, which I think is in- incredibly uh, interesting because you can see just how... Um, clever Jean-Philippe Rameau was and in, in providing different and alternate sort of openings uh, for a, a very similar style of, of, of oeuvre each time. So this is Christophe Rousset again leading Les Talons Lyriques um, in the overture from Les Fêtes de Polymnie. Alan, as, as this exciting music continues to just, you know, race along, are you able to uh, maybe uh, highlight some of the, the orchestral differences here also between Rameau and Lully? So in Lully, the string section sound is quite different to what we're hearing here in the Rameau, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And uh, one of the, the really important things that Lully did was actually to establish the strings as the basis of the orchestra. Uh, he was initially recruited as a player in the famous um, ensemble of, the, of Louis XIV, the, the 24 violins of the king, uh, meaning not, not just violins, but string families. So it was a string orchestra to which Lily introduced a lot of um, modern orchestral practices like uh, orchestral discipline of everybody doing the bowing exactly the same way, uh, of rehearsing a lot before they performed. This was not a thing, <laughs> surprisingly, <laughs> up until that time. Um, and uh, so his orchestral sound is essentially a string sound with the occasional, uh, often reinforced by oboes on the top part, just to, to reinforce the melody. And with some bassoons sometimes reinforcing the bass line along with the, the, um, the, the bass violins, that is the sort of large cellos and sometimes double basses in the orchestra, opera orchestra. But by the time we get up to Grammo, uh, the development of new wind instruments has really taken off, which happened just at the end of the 17th century, pretty much at the end of Lydie's life. Uh, but Grammo now has those kind of resources of different kinds of instruments to use. And in particular, so they've developed the uh, 
the oboe, but also the transverse flute, which is the basis of our modern flute, as opposed to the recorder, which is end blown. Uh, and also the bassoon is, instead of being just uh, a, an instrument that kind of bumps along on the bass line, reinforcing the cellos, it's become an, an instrument with its own sophisticated um, solo parts. And so he uses a, it as an orchestral color, as opposed to simply reinforcement of kind of volume, which is mostly what we get in the early music. And so there's a different kind of color to all of this music, which was not available to Lily um, a, a couple of generations earlier. And hence why in the, the next track I'd like to play for listeners, the Musette Gracieuse that comes from the sort of the, near the end of Act 3 from Platy, we see the bassoon doing just that, featured as the melodic instrument, the main melodic instrument um, here performing in this short uh, Musette. Um, of course, Musette, uh, and it's a particular type of form itself as well as a, a referencing a pastoral instrument. Maybe you could get, tell us a little bit about what a Musette actually is, Alan. Yeah, so it's um, a, a kind of piece that we typically hear as dance music, um, and often Musettes were included in suites of, of, in, of instrumental dances. But as the name suggests, it's referencing an instrument called the Musette, which was a little bagpipe. And so its musical features are typically that it has a drone bass, which uh, evokes the sound, of course, of the, the drone of a bagpipe uh, and a sweet lyrical melody over the top. So in the same way that you would play on a bag, so not like the, the great big Scottish um, pipes, which are so loud and piercing, the musette is an indoor instrument. It's a quiet, very small bagpipe. Um, but its uh, its kind of construction is similar in that it has a bag through which you pump the air. It has a drone which plays a, just the one note as the kind of um, accompaniment, and then you play little melodies over the top. And it was an instrument typical of the countryside, associated with um, shepherds. And you know, if you're sitting on the, the hillside all day watching the sheep, there's not much to do, so you can entertain yourself by playing the musette. Uh, so it's that kind of um, evocation of the uh, of the of rustic um, joy, I suppose, and in the context of the opera, it's also rather comical. And what you hear in the recording is so we have the the, the drone bass of the uh, of the bagpipe, we have uh, a nice uh, rustic melody, and then you hear birdsong in the background, which uh, coming through in the flutes and flute and um, piccolo. And this recording, I think, does that uh, brings that joyfulness and that comic sensibility to the musette that we're just about to hear um, very nicely. Here, uh, the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, led by Nicholas McGeegan, who released an album after having uh, done several live recordings of Platy. This particular album, Rameau, Platy and Dardanus Suites, uh, was actually released in 1998. So around the same time as, as what we just heard from Christophe Housset and the Le Talent Lyrique. Maybe there was something in the water and everyone wanted to call, record Rameau at the time. But, um, but here is the Musette Gracieuse from Act 3, Scene 6 of Platé. <laughs>
<laughs> so if that sounds slightly familiar to you, it might be some Sydney listeners may remember this because the whole opera of Platé was performed back in 2021 by our friends at um, Pinchgut Opera. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, so it's absolutely lovely music. But we have one more piece of Rameau, right? That's right. And it's going to be, again, an overture, um, like uh, what we heard from Le Fête de Polymny, but this time from the opera Naïs. Perhaps you could tell us about Naïs and the story behind, behind this particular work. Yeah, and this is fantastic. And it shows us again how inventive Rameau is. That uh, Remember, we were saying that um, uh, audiences at the time probably would have been a bit shocked by the, the new kind of sound that uh, we get uh, in the... Uh, music from um, uh, Le Fête de Poligny, uh, and we're doing something again kind of shocking and surprising, in a, but in a quite different way in this music from Nais. Uh, what's happening is in the overture, so this is before the, the curtain goes up, as it were, at the beginning of the opera, um, and there's a description in the stage directions from the, from the libretto, the, the word book of the opera, and it says, the stage represents the upper skies. Down on earth can be seen the titans of the giants who are heaping together mountains in order to be able to scale the heavens. They're being driven forward by discord and war. Armed with lightning bolts, Jupiter is to be seen in the firmament with the gods of heaven surrounding him. For the overture, there is battle music portraying the sound, shouting at unrestrained actions of the titans and giants. The stage appears to be on fire, the thunder growls and rumbles, the lightning is unloosed, knocking down the titans and bringing down onto the giants the mountain which they had piled up. So, wow, how's that for the opening of a show? It's, a, it's kind of like your, your James Bond movie that opens with the, you know, the spectacular stunt. Um, and uh, this is just absolutely um, spectacular theatrical scenario for for this period and and they really did go for it in doing spectacular um scenery and and action on the stage so back to christophe rousset and les talents lyriques uh, this is the open the overture or ouverture from naïs
what you described, Alan, uh, as the music continues, I mean, I'm getting that a sense of that, but also because I'm familiar with the script that's just about to be rendered publicly for the first time um, for Notre Dame as a, as a program. This has also been placed in a particular spot where a, a, almost a new sort of take on the theatricality of what we're hearing in the music is is going to be um, is going to be created. It's not about gods and all the all the rest of it. It's about something very different. But um, but still, that it is such theatrical music. Yeah, it's it's so intense and exciting. And of course, as um, we're going now into well into the 18th century, and so the sensibility has changed a bit. It's not so much about a kind of classical sense of French drama, but uh, we're getting more influences, I think, of, of just very exciting theatrical experiences. And uh, so the storyline is still built on this idea of you know classical Greek mythology and all of that, but it's in a sense very kind of up to date and exciting. And uh, so I think that probably um, makes good sense of whatever we're going to hear done with it in this performance. Now, talking about theatrical and dramatic music, one of the things I'm most looking forward to in this concert is what maybe we should talk about next with Jean-Ferry Lebel, Rebel's opening um, movement from Les Elements, Le Chaos. This is, uh, this is, again, something that I remember actually from your class at, uh, at the conservatorium. It's, just, it's shocking to think that this was written at the time it was. Yeah, and I, I like to use this as an example in, in teaching the music of this period because it's so shocking. It's so out of the, the ballpark, really, for what we expect at this, this time. The first time you hear it, you would think, how on earth did somebody write that in the early 18th century? Uh, this is 10 years before the Rameau that we just heard. Um, and if uh, French audiences found the Rameau shocking, they must have been absolutely gobsmacked by what uh, Rebel comes up with here. What's going on is that, uh, so that the title of the, it's a dance piece called The Elements. And so it's fire, earth, water, and so forth. But what he's depicting is at the beginning of it, the chaos before the world was created, as it's, as it's narrated in the, the book of Genesis in the Bible. Um, some listeners may uh, remember that uh, Haydn does a similar thing in the opening of his uh, creation, the, the famous oratorio, where he depicts the, the kind of uh, formlessness of the world before God intervenes and, and creates um, the, the solid earth and so forth out of it. And this is this is Rebel doing this 50 years before, um, well, more than 50 years before Haydn did his version. Uh, and Rebel's take on it is that there is just this absolute mess of sound out of which gradually emerge the elements of fire and water and air and so forth, which are depicted by different instruments. But the opening of it is, uh, let's just have a listen to it because it's, uh, and then I can describe what's going on afterwards. Yes, and, and to not give anything away, I'll just say that this is the Ensemble Pygmalion and with, uh, led by Raphael Pichon uh, performing Le Chaos from Les Elements.
So, Alan, the reason why I didn't want to reveal the title of the album is because it's Enfer, as in hells, uh, plural. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so they have on this particular album released in 2018, um, the Ensemble Pygmalion, they have essentially brought together a whole lot of pieces that are, uh, for them, depict, uh, depicting this sort of hell-like uh, sound that you could create with an orchestra. Now, I know that it wasn't uh, Rebel's initial um, uh, intention for the work, as in it, it has a very specific meaning as, as how else to express the chaos that existed before existence. You know, it's, it's something that's extremely difficult to comprehend, and so that's the solution he came up with utter dissonance uh, to, to then obviously be, um, be stripped down into various elements and, and certain parts of that dissonance get reused and become more comprehensible things um, later as we're hearing now. But, um, but yeah, that dissonant chord, I mean, you know, if to modern ears, this is quite shocking even still today. That's right, yeah. It's something you would associate with maybe the late 20th century uh, rather than the, the 18th. And uh, in, our, in terms of our kind of modern understanding of the, uh, the creation of the universe and so on, it's almost like the Big Bang, right, at <laughs> the beginning of the piece. And the, how he does it is that he simply, uh, the piece is in D minor, and so he takes every note of the D minor scale and plays them all at once, uh, so that the, the way it can uh, kind of turn from chaos into order is by taking out the notes that clash and just leaving the ones that belong to the chord, uh, gradually the harmony emerges out of that, that chaos. But the effect is just, yeah, absolutely stunning. I, I also love the, the look of the, um, the autograph manuscript that survives today. Um, it, the, the ink on the page just for the first opening <laughs> a few bars is just, it's incredible. I mean, you can see that something big is happening right there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sometimes, yeah, looking at the at the piece of music actually tells you something uh, additional to to listening to it. So coming away from the theatre, as it were, back to something that's probably uh, more reminiscent of chamber music from this period of music history. Uh, could you tell us about the Marin Marais Sonnerie de Saint Geneviève du Mont de Paris that we're going to also hear during the program? Yeah, again, a really famous piece, which uh, some listeners may um, recognise that they've heard before. It's uh, by so Marin Marais, who was another contemporary of, um, of Lydie, more or less, and the, the composers we've been talking about. Um, so this is slightly earlier than the, the Rameau. Um, and uh, it's yeah, taking us back to the chamber. And it's interesting for several reasons. One of them is that um, we were talking before about the Pasakai and how it's based on this repeating bass line of just a descending sequence of four notes. Well, this piece is also based on a repeating sequence and it's uh, it repeats and repeats and repeats. It's, uh, it's kind of um, mesmerizing um, how much this simple pattern repeats. Uh, but instead of being one of those pre-existing 
um, kind of tropes like the, the Pascay bass. Uh, this one is based on the sound, as the title suggests, of the church bells of uh, Saint Genevieve of the, the Mount of Paris. Um, and so the pattern goes bum, 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 bum. I'm not sure if I'm in the right key, but that's the pattern. And uh, so it takes us back, although it's music for the chamber rather than the theatre or the church, it evokes the sound of the church because it's, it's taking us to the, the sound of the church bells. And uh, over the top of that repeating bass line, we have a kind of duet played between two and it's really interesting which instruments he picks to do this. It's the violin, which by this time is well established as the main kind of melodic instrument. Uh, but the other part that it's duetting with is played on the uh, basta viol, that is the viola de gamba in its Italian name, um, or in English, bass viol, which is a related instrument, but uh, it's the the one that looks a little bit like a cello, but it has six strings instead of four, and its sound is fairly different from the violin family instruments like the violin and viola and cello. Uh, it has a kind of clear, delicate sound, and this was the instrument that was considered a proper aristocratic instrument. If you were a gentleman amateur who wanted to learn to play music, then you didn't play the violin. That was a kind of crass instrument played by your servants for the theatre and so forth. Uh, if you, for a sophisticated um, aristocratic musician, it was the bass viol. It was absolutely the instrument that you played because it was good for chamber music. It's not a loud instrument, but within uh, a small to medium sized room, it fills the room beautifully and it can play its own harmony much more than is, is easy to do on a, an instrument like the violin or cello. You can play across the strings so that the bass viol plays essentially both the accompaniment and the melody. Here though, it's being used mainly as a melodic instrument in duet with the violin. So we hear almost a kind of combination of the, the old world of the viol family and the new world of the violin, uh, the Italian kind of sound of the violin with along with the French sound of the, the bass viol. Uh, so it's a kind of, it blends beautifully, but at the same time, it creates a kind of contrast of, of sound, which uh, keeps the, the thing really interesting. Uh, over this uh, relentlessly repeating baseline. One thing to notice is we probably won't get up to it in listening to the opening, but the baseline stays just on this, this same, uh, in the same key for a long, long time. And then eventually it suddenly shifts to, uh, to the dominant. And so the, the shift of key suddenly is really striking, a little bit in the way that going back to Pervatin, the shift just from one drone note to the next one or a shift of, shift of syllable transforms the whole sound. And you go, wow, uh, within this narrow kind of sound world that's been built up, you get this small contrast, which just um, uh, blows the whole thing open in a way. Uh, and it's a fantastic effect. That's right. And in the context of the Notre Dame program that listeners are going to experience um, live in, in concert hall, in the concert hall, it actually will be um, a, an arrangement of this work rather than the original form with just the three instruments, which was uh, created by Alice Chance in 2014, that the orchestra performed in the Ottoman Baroque program uh, because it was used in that program uh, for dramatic effect as sort of a, a sense of traveling music um, that that you probably remember, Alan, because you would have heard it about 17 times um, through rehearsal. And then obviously the, the role as a narrator that you actually played within that program. Uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear this uh, version again. So we only have two composers left to, to mention for this program. 
André Compra is the first I'd like to talk about. Um, can you tell us about what is going to be an Australian premiere in, in part because we're only doing uh, the introit from this uh, Messe de Requiem, but can you tell us about André Compra and, and what we should expect from his music? Yeah, so he's another contemporary of the, the kinds of composers we've been talking about, um, almost the same age as Marais, so his life overlaps very much with Lully as well. Uh, he was the, from the south of France, um, but uh, he finished up at Notre Dame in Paris. And uh, so the middle years of his career from um, about 1700 to 1720, he was composing theatrical music, but actually had to hide this because the, the church considered that stage music was not a, a morally appropriate thing, particularly for a church musician to be doing. Um, however, what we're going to hear here is a piece of church music. And this is from his setting of the Requiem Mass. And it's a very impressive opening and maybe reflects the fact that he was also a theatrical composer, that he brings a kind of sense of drama to the opening of the, the Requiem. Um, Requiem at Ternon, rest in peace, it, it begins. And uh, what we get is a typical, typical French church music sound of uh, a grand chorus and orchestra, but alternating with short evocative solos from some of the, the singers highlighting particular words as they arise. And this recording is one of the earlier ones of the Requiem. And I'm surprised that actually this, this work hasn't been performed in Australia prior because it is just such amazing music. It's so beautiful. It reminds us of how much uh, fabulous music from this period there is still for us to discover um, a lot of it is, uh, there's lots of music still being rediscovered and recorded for the first time. And yeah, in this case, we're going to hear uh, this music for the first time in Australia. And this is Philip Herreweger leading La Chapelle Royale, actually, in performance. Um, recorded in 1986, the introit from André Compras' Messe de Requiem.
Right, and that brings us to our final piece, I believe, Hugh, which is by a certain composer called, uh, who, who doesn't sound entirely French, his name is Hugh Ronzani, and that will be you. Yeah, that's right. Well, I don't, yeah, I was going to say I haven't met the guy, but, um, but uh, no, unfortunately, I, I have. <laughs> Only in the mirror in the yeah, morning, right? That, that's, that's right, that's right. No, look, this particular work was commissioned by Paul Dyer, not because of my French connection, but I think actually because I had been working with Paul and Alana very closely on the project. And he needed a very particular thing for the end of this program because it, it's easy enough to start some sort of project like this, but actually how you finish it, how you leave the audience after all of this, the acting, after all of the, the visuals on the projected onto the screen, um, you know, the, the music, how do you finish something like that? And I think Paul wanted to leave audiences with a sense of hope and I, in fact, I know that because that's literally the brief that he, he gave me. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what I was trying to work towards as I was writing this particular work. Yeah. And because it, uh, it doesn't have words, does it? So uh, there's no, um, it's, not, it's not kind of the French language particularly, but it's more about a, almost, would it be fair to say that it's kind of like uh, film music. It's about evoking a, a particular kind of atmosphere that um, to to illustrate the story that we're hearing. That idea may have been correct actually uh, about a week ago, uh, but uh, but given that um, that certain uh, requests were made uh, by Paul actually to to add in, and we'd been talking about adding the choir in for this particular finale um, actually for some months. But um, but now that the choir has been added, uh, I've actually. Uh, also recomposed the work um, to be able to accommodate that and both theatrically but also musically. And the choir have a very important text that they are going to be singing and I have used elements of, or elements really rather inspired by what sort of chant music that we'd heard in terms of the Gregorian chant mm. music. Mm. And the choir will be singing the French version of the Hail Mary which was penned and formulated by Eudes de Sully at the time that Perrotin was writing Viderunt Omnes. So going back to the 12th century, you know, going back to um, Eudes de Sully, the Archbishop of Paris at the time, who was a proponent of the, and basically kick-started the Notre Dame School of Polyphony, you know, this, this, sort, of, this sort of period of time. So really... The cathedrals being built, you know, takes us back to to uh, to the again to the start of the building, the start of the the whole um, the whole premise for the show being the cathedral of Notre Dame. Of course, there's there's no recording of this yet, I guess. But uh, just looking at the score that you've sent me, and uh, I guess this is a, an earlier version of the piece, I can see those uh, kind of evocations of the the uh, sound of of chant coming through in the slow moving. Um, mostly stepwise kind of lines of the melodic lines that it, it begins with um and but folks listening what you're hearing here is the creation of new music in real time right because uh, of course Hugh, your first degree was in composition right you're uh but that's what you were studying at the conservatorium when you did my music history class. Th that's right. And in fact, my second degree, my master's was also in music composition at the Royal College of Music in, in London. 
And I think in both uh, instances, uh, I have always been interested in music history and so included units and, 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 and some of them were prerequisites, but uh, I certainly always enjoyed incorporating those sorts of elements into my work. And here it was a perfect opportunity to sort of include something that is so um, important in the context of this project, this, this you know, um, production, um, but uh, also important to me. And, um, and so this, uh, this Hail Mary also happens to be exactly the same text, although it was in a, a modern form um, that, um, that people on the street in Paris, as the fire of Notre Dame was, was burning, were singing in a form of solidarity together, trying to somehow comprehend, I think, what was, what was unfolding beyond, b- before their eyes. And I, I, I know exactly the, those spots because I used to live actually not even 400 metres away from the cathedral on the Boulevard Saint-Michel. Mm. So, so when I saw those things from here in, in Sydney actually unfolding and, and it was in the middle of the day for us, uh, just it was yeah a lot of things came home and it was um it was i'm so honored to have been asked by paul to actually write this and um yeah i can't wait for audiences to um to to hear it yeah it's uh it's one of the things that's fascinating about this for me is hearing a, a new piece composed right now is actually the experience that most people hearing all of the music on our program previously would have had when that music was composed. It was new music. It was cutting edge at the time. Uh, and we have to, I think it, it's, well, we don't have to, but it's a, um, a useful kind of um, thought experiment for us to do, to try and place ourselves in the place and time when that music was new and to hear it with fresh ears, not as old music, but the way that people might have heard it when it was first created uh, and to hear the things that are special and different and interesting about it from what's gone on before. And we're getting to hear that with your music now, that this is something that's being created right now for us, especially. And of course, what we're going to hear is a world premiere in this performance. So that's really exciting too. The first performance will be down in Melbourne on the 22nd of February. And if you haven't already gotten your tickets, there's also um, the two other performances down in Melbourne, the following Saturday and then Sunday. And the the actual run in Sydney is very short. You know, it's not, there aren't many, many uh, dates because it's all sort of cramped together and in a different, slightly different format to how we, we usually do it, um, where we're opening on Tuesday, the 27th of um, of February, which is not uh, not often the day that we would usually open a concert. Usually it's been either traditionally a Wednesday or a Friday. But in this case, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, the 28th, Friday, the, uh, the, the 1st of March, and then two concerts on Saturday, the 2nd of March. Yeah, it's a packed program, but um, it uh, will be, yeah, really exciting, I think, to, to hear that. And maybe um, fun for the musicians, too, to play it in a series of performances close together so that each time it comes with just a slightly different colour and, uh, uh, and an intensity that builds up through, I guess, a, a run of performances like this. And uh, I, I always ask you, Alan, actually, what you're most looking forward to in this, this program. Um, uh, so, so there's so much to choose from. We've already spoken about so many different things. What are you most looking forward to then coming together in, in, in this Yeah, in this it's hard to pick, isn't it? There are, certain, there are things like the Compra that I've never heard performed, of course, because it hasn't been done live in Australia before. Um, there are old favourites like the uh, Marais, um, the... Uh, the Rebelle is always exciting, but I think I, for my my pick for, for this one, I can't go past Perrotin. Um I did 
I think performed this once long, long ago, but uh, I haven't heard it as an audience member, I don't think, live um, before. And it's such a, a brilliant piece. I'm really looking forward to hearing that above everything. Oh, that is really, uh, again, for me, it is certainly one of my favorites in the whole the whole program. Um, so listeners, if you haven't bought a ticket already, please, you know, you will be missing something very special. Um, this program, Notre Dame, is not only a fabulous way to start the year, um, but it's certainly something you'll be able to tell your grandkids about, I'm sure, as you've said sometimes <laughs> on this program, Alan, because it, it is full of, full of wonderful things. Thank you again, Alan, for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Great pleasure to talk to you again, Hugh. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.